Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. We are continuing in our uh, series in Genesis. We are now on the back half, so we just got a couple more weeks of this before Advent. And uh, last week, so if you're new, we, we're doing this, this uh, series we're calling Confronting Genesis, and as I say every week, it is a, a mashup of, of uh, a sort uh, between the book of Genesis, which we started in Genesis 1-1 and are now at the end of 3, uh, and a book written by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity, in which she takes on 12 of the biggest, hardest questions facing Christianity and tries to answer them, and I think does so really, really well. So we had Dr. McLaughlin out uh, to help launch the uh, ICON in September, and she was fantastic. And so we're kind of overlapping some of the text with these big ideas. So last week we talked about evil and, and kind of the nature and causes of evil. Why is there evil in our world? Kind of answering some of those maybe cliche questions, but important questions like why do bad things happen to good people or how can a good and powerful God allow such evil in the world? And those kinds of things. So we talked a, a little bit more intellectually about that last week, about why evil and what it's like and why it matters and those things. This week, what we want to talk about is as Christians, and each of, these, uh, each of these weeks, we've kind of tried to look at these different subjects through the lens of Christianity. So we want to ask, answer the question, how, how can a Christian or how should a Christian um, walk through seasons of suffering? Okay, and so um, that's the question we want to answer uh, tonight. And so to do that, I want to root us in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we'll start in verse 22. Um, we are, we're going to jump around a little bit more throughout the Bible, more tonight than we normally would, more than I prefer, honestly. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to take a week to zoom out a little bit and go, man, what does the Bible talk about suffering? Because as I say often, the only thing I know about suffering is that you are either just coming out of it, you are currently in it, or you're about to be in it. Suffering is the constant of the human experience. So we always need a, a, a strategy, practical ways in which we can address the suffering in our lives. And so that's what I want to do tonight. I want to give us really practical ways to think about suffering. But I want to start with what is our foundation uh, as Christians on this issue. So chapter 3 Verse 22, if you remember from last week, or if you weren't here, catch you up really quick. Adam and Eve, sin, uh, sin enters the world through their rebellion. God explains how their rebellion and sin has this cascading effect through all of creation, that it affects uh, their relationships, it affects their work, it affects their childbearing, it affects everything, the physical world, the emotional world, the relational world, that sin has this kind of creeping effect into every part of our lives and is then kind of the nature and cause of of all the pain and suffering that we experience. So um, they sin, they break God's world in this sense. Um, God explains all of the ways in which the world is now going to uh, reel from their decision. And then we see this little verse in, in uh, verse 22, this one statement that I think matters so much. It says, and the Lord God 
made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, I don't want to make too much of one sentence like this. And yet, I try to put myself in God's position. Right? God has created the world perfect. It is his creation. It is the, the, the expression of his love, the expression of his character, the expression of his will. He has made all things very good. And then some days, hours, moments, eons, who knows, after that creative work is accomplished, then Adam and Eve sin and it all breaks down. And, and I know when I create much lesser things that then get ruined, I know how I respond, right? Especially as the father of many, many children. I'm like Father Abraham. <laughs> many sons, many daughters. I, I, I know that, for instance, on Saturday mornings as I'm making pancakes, if when I'm flipping, I get bumped and the pancake, uh, not quite cooked, gets strewn about the stove and the batter is spreading and dripping and glooping and all of this, I know that my response is not to cover my children in garments of skin, so to speak. <laughs> right? And so I, I, this, that, that little moment that I may have experienced yesterday uh, is, is for me an illustration of the unending love and care that God has for his creation. That literally in the moments of aftermath, after everything that God made has, has been fundamentally broken, God stops and cares for Adam and Eve knowing that they are going out of the garden into the real world and will be cold and will be naked and will be exposed and he covers them. This is the foundation, right? So uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, euphemistically dead. He says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, right? And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, first of all, thank you. So, so glad that you're here. So impressed that you would be here on a Sunday night engaging these ideas. I may have questions about your social calendar in general, but, but otherwise really glad you're here. And um, I, I, I read a passage like that, and, and I, I, I want to at least make the comment that Paul is not here saying that if you are not a Christian, that you have no hope. Somebody's saying. But he is saying that there is a particular kind of hope that Christians have, not just in the fact that there will be an afterlife, that there is more to this world in the future for those who are dead. But that even today, even the day-to-day the -day sufferings and pain have meaning. And if, and if you're here today and you are kind of a strict materialist atheist, then, then those two things are not true. Like there is nothing beyond and, and there is no kind of greater, deeper meaning to the world. It's just pain, it hurts, we move on, that's life. And there's nothing beyond the molecules to describe it. And so Paul here in 1 Thessalonians says, there's a way to grieve 
if we understand that there's more and we understand that there's meaning, and there's a way that you might grieve if there was nothing more and there was no meaning. And Paul says, if we are Christians, then we ought to grieve in such a way that reflects what we believe about eternity and about the present, about the real meaning that we know about in the day-to-day life. So um, here's what I want to do this evening. I want to talk about three practices that we might uh, engage in during times of suffering. And, and what I don't want us to do is think about them as a process, right? This isn't a step one, step two, step three uh, kind of process, because um, mostly because suffering and pain and all of that is just, it, it's not linear, it's not logical, it's, uh, it's emotional, it's experiential, and we're gonna need to lean into different practices at different times in our lives to kind of solve different problems or to kind of right the ship in different ways as we kind of react and respond to the pain that we're experiencing. So rather than thinking about them as a linear process, I want to think about them as tools that we can pick up in times of need. And so these are the three practices uh, that I I want us to talk about. First, uh, I want us to mourn because suffering is not God's plan. Two, I want us to trust, I want us to trust in God because suffering is God's plan. And three, I want us to depend on others because community was God's plan from the beginning. So I want us to mourn, I want us to trust, and I want us to depend. So let's begin with mourning. Um, humans, and, and I would say uh, maybe Christians in particular, that's been most of my life experience, have kind of uh, a, a difficult relationship with mourning. There are some of us who grew up thinking, gosh, if you really trusted God, you would never be sad. Because you know what, if we, if we trust hard enough, we have enough faith and we believe that God is good, then nothing is really sad because everything's God's plan and we, we, we kind of have to shut down those emotions because they betray a lack of faith. Others on the other side are so captured by their emotions and give such authority to their emotions that whatever it is they're feeling kind of wins the day, rules the day, and our feelings, our mourning is never to be questioned, never to be regulated, never to be deterred. And so uh, from the Bible's perspective, from Christianity's perspective, neither of those two things are true. In fact, the Bible talks about mourning a lot. There's a whole category of psalms that are basically just David and then the other guys who wrote psalms just crying out to God, complaining in a, I guess it's, it's probably not complaining when it's in the Bible, but like it feels like complaining uh, about some injustice they're experiencing. In fact, Psalm 88 is, is kind of the typified example of this and it ends with uh, the writer saying, darkness is my best friend. That's literally how the psalm ends. It doesn't resolve in like, oh God, how is this happening? This is so unjust. It's so unfair. I'm so sad, but you're sovereign and I love you anyway. No, it ends with, and darkness is my best friend, which is like great emo lyrics, right? Like (laughs) somebody needs to steal that for sure. 
But there's this whole category of psalms that are, are just, just crying out to God in pain with no resolution often. Job, the book of Job, is, is just one really long, repetitive, ongoing conversation between Job and his wife and his friends and God. And it's just the misery that Job has experienced in loss of life and loss of goods and loss of everything. And at one point, Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. They need counseling. So, I mean, like, the, the Bible is, is not shy about talking about mourning. In fact, Jesus, in the most famous sermon that he preached, the one on the mount, um, says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So why is mourning so critical to the way we deal with suffering. Three reasons. One, mourning testifies to the wrongness of suffering. By crying out to God or simply crying, we testify that this world is not as it should be. That death and pain have no right to be here. In fact, mourning preaches sin. Mourning preaches the brokenness of this world. There is a temptation in all of us, and the, I, I think it's multiplying because of digital technologies and platforms like Instagram to portray happiness, to kind of embody this, this happy life that, uh, in which kind of nothing is going wrong and everything's good and we're very good looking and very successful and our, and our children are well behaved. Even though we all know it's not true, uh, we portray it kind of over and over and over and there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of a cultural force, there's a peer pressure around it. And so simply mourning brokenness. And, and mourning in the way that we're going to talk about, like true biblical mourning actually preaches a message of sin, saying, no, this world is not as it should be. And it's not just this kind of one wonderful experience of life. Like there is deep pain that I'm experiencing as a result of some of my decisions and some of the decisions made by others around me. And, and it hurts and I hate it and I don't want it to be the case that mourning actually testifies to the truth about the world in a way that celebration cannot fully. Number two, mourning is a tool that God has given us to navigate a broken world. Um, I have a, a mentor, pastor, counselor guy in my life that I talk to regularly. And um, when we first started talking, he told me, he says, okay, I, I've got a process and we're going to kind of work this process. And, and, uh, and he'd say, this is the process. Step one is feel your feelings. I'm like, well, that's stupid. I said, okay, well, we'll, we'll do that one for a while then. Step one is feel your feelings. Step two, step two is tell the truth about your feelings. So actually say what it is you're feeling. And, uh, and then the third is trust the process, okay? And so we, we did this for, uh, for years, like literally like two years. And, and I, learned, I learned how to feel my feelings, still learning, but 
began to learn. I, I, I learned how to tell the truth about my feelings and actually express the pain and hurt and all the things that I was feeling. And I remember one day, I remember I was in San Francisco, I was walking down the street in the mission and I said, you know what, Jeff, um, we've been doing this for, uh, it'd been two years. And I said, I get the feel your feelings thing. I'm feeling them all over the place. Um, I get telling the truth about my feelings. I've begun to put words on things, but, uh, I, but when do we get to the process? What's the process? He goes, the process is, Feel your feelings and tell the truth about your feelings. And it occurred to me in that moment that simply learning those two things, just to be able to rightly identify sadness. I remember the very first time we had a phone call and I was telling him about something I was dealing with and he goes, how's that make you feel? And I said, yeah, next question. He said, no, how does that make you feel? And I said, I don't know, frustrated. He goes, okay, well, that's not a feeling, so maybe give me another one. And, I, and no joke, two-minute pause, and I went, frustrated? <laughs> he goes, okay, this, let, let me suggest some things for you, right? Like, I, I couldn't come up with a second word, okay? And so I realized that as I, I kind of worked the process of feeling and being able to I, rightly identify, oh, what I'm feeling is sadness. That's what that is. That feeling of just being tied up in here all the time is sadness? Huh. Like that was super helpful to me. And then being able to tell my wife, Emily, I'm sad. <laughs> it, it's amazing how simple that sounds, but just being able to say that out loud, hey, this thing happened, I felt a thing, this is the thing sad. And she's like, wow, this is really big. <laughs> Our marriage has a future. <laughs> but, but that process gave me tools to be able to navigate a broken world because much of the world is sad. Much of the world makes me angry. Much of the world makes me glad, makes me lonely, makes me feel guilty or ashamed or any number of different feelings. And so mourning, that process of grieving and actually being able to name what it is that happened and how it makes me feel and be able to say that out loud to a trusted confidant and just be able to do that over and over and over is a tool that God has given us to navigate this broken and complex world. Number three, mourning. This kind of mourning keeps us from solving, blaming, or distraction. I don't like mourning because mourning doesn't move. Mourning just sits. And I don't like sitting. Solving moves. Blaming moves. Distraction at least feels like movement. But mourning doesn't move. Mourning just lingers in the pain. And if there is anything we want in the moments of pain, it's relief. We want it to stop. We want it to go away. And mourning requires us to sit in it. 
to just be in it. I want to solve. I want to end the pain. I want to find someone to blame so that it's not on me, so that my sadness can turn to anger. It can turn to reaction. It can turn to movement. I want distraction so I don't have to think about it anymore, so I don't have to feel. But Jesus tells us, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. And ultimately, mourning is, as Jesus said, for comfort, for nothing else. Blame won't comfort you. Solving won't comfort you. Distraction won't comfort you. And when you are in the midst of suffering, you need comfort. Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in that book, he quotes another book, so we're going really meta here, uh, called The View from a Hearse. And this book is written by a guy who lost uh, three sons. And he explains... He explains the, an experience this way. He says, I was sitting, torn with grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat, me, sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. In the midst of suffering, one of the things we need is just simply to be comforted by God, by others. But in our haste, to not feel the pain anymore. We will often skip the step or shortchange the step of mourning and quickly move to solve or distract or push down and then never experience the comfort that we need. That's one. Number two, we need to trust. Trust God because suffering is part of God's plan. Some years ago, uh, pastor and writer John Piper was diagnosed with cancer. And on the night before his surgery, he wrote a, a blog post, an article called Don't Waste Your Cancer. In it, he, he wrote this. He says, it will not do to say that God only uses our cancer but does not design it. What God permits, he permits for a reason. And that reason is his design. If God foresees molecular developments becoming cancer, he can stop it or not. If he does stop it, he has a purpose. Since he is infinitely wise, it is right to call this purpose a design. Satan is real and causes many pleasures and pains, but he is not ultimate. So when Satan strikes Job with boils, Job attributes it ultimately to God. And the inspired writer agrees, quote, they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. If we don't believe our cancer or our suffering 
is designed for us by God, we will waste it. Now, this idea troubles some of us. But if we think about it for a second, what would we rather believe? Would we rather believe that God is powerless over our suffering? That he'd love to do something about it, but simply cannot? He's not, he's not powerful enough to do anything about our suffering? Or that he chooses to let things play out and not intervene, to just be hands off? Why would we prefer that? So that we can protect God from the accusation of being responsible for our cancer or loved one's death? God doesn't need our protection. Besides the fact that this is what the Bible teaches in places like Job or in Romans 8, where it says that God works all things for our good, is it not far more comforting to believe that God is in control and has a purpose, even an unknowable purpose for our pain. Otherwise, it's just random and pointless. Passages like 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 speak to this. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, he's talking about suffering, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this, and he says, light momentary affliction. And if you know Paul's story of shipwreck and beating and imprisonment and all that Paul has gone through, him calling it a light momentary affliction is kind of hilarious. So you guys can laugh. Good. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or James uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. James says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James actually has the guts to tell us to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Why? Because God is using it to strengthen us. James here says to rejoice when we meet trials because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, as if steadfastness is what we are all longing for in our lives. As if the first part of that sentence, all the trials, all the tests, all the suffering, all the pain, and the very last word that he's building us towards, saying all of this is good, we should rejoice in the midst of all of the pain and suffering because steadfastness. But James says, because here's, here's what happens. When, when God produces that strength in us, that steadfastness, that, that ability, that discipline, the, the willingness to stay in it and to be strong in the midst of pain and suffering, allows that pain and suffering to wash over us in such a way that can sanctify, that can change, that can hone, that can purify, that can make us into what James calls being perfect, complete, lacking nothing. That there's a perfecting power to pain and suffering when we can rejoice in it, when we can stay in it, when it produces that steadfastness 
in us. Jonathan Haidt is a NYU professor of social psychology, wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's really, really good. But in it, he says this. He says, from time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck, again, from time to time, so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others uh, is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. I can do that for you. (laughs) It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you'll know the importance of listening to others. I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they are going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend on your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. Now, what Jonathan Haidt speaks to at an admittedly kind of shallow level, the scriptures speak to at greatest depth. So I don't know what the message of your suffering is. I have no idea. I have no idea why God has brought whatever pain you've experienced into your life. It could be to point out idolatry in your life, to awaken you to some sin, to open your eyes to something you are building your identity on, leaning on too strongly, to remind you of God's existence, to demonstrate life's fragility, to prove that this life is a vapor or could have nothing at all to do with you. It could be about someone else. He could be using your suffering and the testimony of how you are coping with it like a Christian to show someone else the goodness of life with Christ. I have no idea what the point is. But I know that God has a purpose in everything he does. So there are going to be moments in our suffering where we need to lean into mourning. We need to pick up that tool of mourning and and just cry and be comforted. And there's gonna be moments where we're gonna be sobered enough to be able to actively trust God and choose to trust that he has a purpose and look for that purpose because not all of that purpose is unknowable. Again, like I said last week, each and every one of us in the room has some story of a time where we had great pain in our lives that we hated and wanted to get out of as quickly as possible that now, given some time, can look back and go, yeah, that was terrible, but I wouldn't change it. We all have that story. And if you don't, you will part of life. We all know that pain produces good in our lives. And just because we cannot now see the good that it has produced, one, doesn't mean we ever will, but it certainly doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The third thing that we have to do when we suffer is depend on other people. Because that's how, from the very beginning, it was designed to be. 
the Bible assumes that we are doing life together. The Bible assumes that we need each other. As much as we might want to believe we are autonomous individuals capable of navigating life on our own, that is not true. You deeply need the people around you. And the Bible reflects this dozens and dozens of times. It uses the phrase one another. 16 times in the New Testament alone, it tells us to love one another. It tells us to be devoted to one another, to honor one another above ourselves, to live in harmony with one another, to build up, to be like-minded towards, to accept, admonish, greet, care for, serve, bear each other's burdens, forgive, be patient with, speak the truth and love to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, to speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to submit to one another, to consider others better than yourselves, to look to the interests of one another, to bear with, to teach, to comfort, to encourage, to exhort, to stir up one another, to love and good works, to show hospitality to each other, to employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another, to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, to pray for one another, and to confess our faults to one another, and this is just a sampling. The Bible assumes that we know how much we need each other. For these and many more practices, and, and some of us even now are, are trying to rationalize ways in which we could technically obey all of these commands without actually being in known community. And I would just ask you why? Why is it that something the Bible takes as, as such an assumption would we fight against? Something that clearly God thinks is for our good, that we rebel against at every turn and, and are hesitant to join in committed community. I experienced this firsthand in the negative. We planted a church in San Francisco uh, Moved there in 2012. We were there for about four years. It was the most difficult four years of my life. And one of the things, besides learning I had feelings, um, that happened to me during my time there was I, for the first time in my life, felt need. And, and, and hear me, I said it's the first time I felt need. Not the first time I had needs, but the first time I felt need. And what had happened is I looked around me when I was there in San Francisco and feeling all of this need and feeling like I was on my own and feeling lonely and feeling all this stuff. And, and I started to look around and go, okay, who's going to help me? And no one was there. And, and I was talking about this with that same counselor that taught me my feelings. And I, I was complaining, going, like, nobody's there for me, man. Like, I, I need them, and they're not there. And he says, I know why. I said, because they're bad people? <laughs> he said, well, yeah, probably. But also, <laughs> because you spent the first 32 years of your life telling them you didn't need them. You trained all the people in your life how to deal with you. You spent your whole life saying, I got this, I got this, I'm good, don't worry about it. And so when I didn't got this, no one was around. Not because they're bad people, they are, but not, that's not why. 
but because I told them, I trained them, I taught them not to help me and that I never need their help. I taught them that I'm not human and I may not, I'm like a demigod, not fully divine, but certainly better than you. And I spent the majority of my life teaching this implicitly and sometimes explicitly. And so that when finally God crushed me to the point that I could see for the first time my own need, no one was there. Further crushing me. Further exposing me to my own need. Some of you will say that in order to really engage vulnerably, to really depend on others, that you need a safe space to do so. That's true. And do it anyway. There is no safe space. There are safer spaces and more dangerous spaces. But all relationship is risk. There's no such thing as a relationship without risk. And if you attempt it, you won't have relationship. You may have a contract, but you will not have a relationship. So we, we were built to need each other. We, we were built as complementary pieces for one another. If you'll remember in Genesis 2, when God looked out over his creation, he had just said everything is very good. And then he said, ah, actually, man should not be alone. That's, that's what's missing here, actually. As humans were not meant to be alone. They were created for one another. And so we have to depend on people. We have to really lean on them with our whole selves. We have to suffer with them. And for those of us who are in one of those seasons, either just coming out of or not quite in again, and we are not currently overwhelmed by suffering, but know someone who is, it's our responsibility to step in and to surround them with that comforting, loving community that they need. Now, to wrap up, I want to go back to 1 Thessalonians. At the very beginning, I read from 1 Thessalonians 4.13 saying, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. But Paul doesn't end there. He actually um, kind of solves that idea, saying, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is why Paul calls us a people who have hope. We believe in God. We believe that God is powerful and good. 
We believe that he is powerful enough to use the most difficult moments in our lives for our good. He is unrelentingly good, so much so that he takes every evil and rebellious decision that we and everyone else has ever made and turns them for our good. Something our good that is painful, really, really painful, but still for our good. The only way that we can really believe this, really, really own it, especially in the midst of suffering, is if we look to the cross to see how Christ's suffering brought about eternal life for everyone who believes. If he can turn the death of God into everlasting life for me, he can turn my light momentary affliction into his greatest glory. We've seen it. We have seen in one moment the great power and love of God for us. In a moment where, where in, in the most macro sense possible, that all pain and all suffering and all sin was crucified in one moment. And that moment accomplished life for all people. This is the paradigm of Christianity. So that when we suffer, we might say like Paul that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. So that we too might share in the resurrection of Christ. And so when pain and suffering come, we ought to mourn because it's not right. And we ought to trust because it is God's will. And we ought to depend because that's the way God made us to live and thrive together. All right, uh, we'll do two questions. First, uh, it says, I'm a little confused how suffering as a part of God's design fits in with the Creation, fall, redemption, renewing, or whatever it is. First of all, great job. Nailed it. <laughs> we talk about the gospel story as creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And this is a great question. How does that fit? How does the idea um, that uh, suffering as God's design fits in with that framework? It's, it's, it's a great question. And, and here's how I'd answer it. Um, God created the world perfect. That was his intention uh, from the beginning, that it would be in perfect harmony. Uh, part of that creation was to give mankind the freedom to be human, to have will. And they used that will to rebel against God. And so at that moment, there's kind of an inflection point, right? And, and God could have done anything. God's God. He could have uh, taken it any direction. What God has apparently chosen to do in the midst of it is to, in a sense, honor the, the choice that Adam and Eve made and exist within the framework of a broken world. And so God's work is always redemptive. Now, he had a lot of options. He could have scrapped the whole thing at that point, just, just killed Adam and Eve and started over and wiped it clean. He could have just let the whole thing flow and just let us kind of live out the implications of that rebellion. But God chose a third way, which was to kind of honor their choice and yet from the very first moments work redemptively within that kind of broken framework. 
And so uh, rather than kind of usurping the will of humans from then on, God takes every every moment, every atom, every molecule, everything that is happening as it is happening and redeems and restores and works and God's uh, kind of redemptive love is unrelenting and untiring in the midst of that. Now, that begs all kinds of questions about the relationship between our will and God's will and all of those things that are super interesting questions, really good questions that I have moderate answers for, and, uh, and, and aren't, this isn't the, the greatest uh, venue to be, to be kind of hashing that stuff out. But the, the big idea is that God, in the midst of all of our decisions, this goes back to what we talked about last week when we thought more kind of intellectually about the problem of evil. Often we say, well, why would a good and powerful God allow evil to happen? And I kind of ran us through a series of questions of saying, okay, are we saying we want God to intervene and stop war? Maybe. We might say that. Okay, are we saying that we would want God to intervene and stop people from murdering? Yeah, we might say that too. Does it mean we would want God to intervene and stop people from lying? Would we want God to intervene and stop people from gossiping? Would we want people to stop? Would we want God to stop people from envying? Would we want Him to stop people from right? Like we reach a point at which we have to say we want God to stop everybody from doing everything bad, in which case we have now lost our will. Right, And so uh, at some point, everybody kind of cashes out from that series of questions and goes, well, no, because I kind of like gossiping um, or whatever, right? Like <laughs> it, it eventually gets to a point where we go, no, I don't want God to intervene and stop me from having independent thought. And so we go, okay, well, then what do we actually want God to do? So what God does is he, in a God divinely wise and mysterious way, intervenes redemptively in every moment in human history. In, in mysterious ways, sometimes very obvious ways, sometimes non-obvious ways, right? So the cross is this next marker in that creation, fall, redemption, restoration story where he gives us both uh, a preview of what's to come and then we, in theologians will talk about it being kind of the tension of the already and not yet. So there is in Christ this already possibility to experience redemption and renewal and restoration and regeneration of our hearts and yet it is not yet fully experienced and will be one day. And so we're kind of in the midst of that redemptive process, okay? So I don't know if that's a fully satisfying answer, but it's the one I'm giving. Question two, where is the line between God having a plan for our suffering and him being capricious or even sadistic in allowing us to experience pain? First of all, great adjectives. Um, <laughs> second of all, um, I would say the line is uh, drawn directly down the middle of God's character. If God's character is capricious and sadistic uh, or, or uh, evil and petty and underhanded, then uh, bringing pain into the world or you know, sovereignly overseeing pain in the world would in fact be those things. But oftentimes, the Bible describes pain and suffering as the discipline of a father for a child, 
right? And so some of that discipline, you know, hurts more than other discipline. But a good father or a good mother disciplines their child for their good, right? That's the, that's the idea of discipline, that it's corrective, that it is loving, that it is done to instruct the child and teach the child this a, this is destructive behavior that you shouldn't continue in, and this is the right behavior that leads to your and other people's flourishing, and discipline in the midst of that kind of does both of those things. Rightly identifies sin and, and instructs and encourages towards good behavior, right? And so the, whether the pain and suffering is sadistic or capricious is uh, completely the result of the character of God. And we believe that the scriptures... Uh, describe a God who is fully good and fully wise and fully powerful and omnipotent so that he can see not only just what is my best thing in this moment, but the uh, infinitely complex web of what is good for you and you in relationship with one another in relationship with me and what the trickle effects of that and all that are, that insanely complicated web of all of human history that it is only God who is both omnipotent enough, powerful enough, and good enough to be able to kind of rightly administer discipline for our good. And I am so glad that's his job and not mine. And we rest in, this is why we talked about trusting, we rest in the character of God, not in our understanding of what's happening in our world. Because we're seeing a very partial, uh, limited version of what's happening and not the whole picture. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.